are like one of our big like development paradigms that connects is always like aggressively reduce complexity as much as possible. So, you know, one day we just like kind of sat there and we were like, what if we just rebuilt this from scratch? And we thought of it, like if we were going to redesign like a cross-chain protocol from the scratch, what would it look like? And like, we spent like maybe two days, like just talking about it and designing it. And then like, we kind of proposed it to like the team uh, as like a possible thing. Like, let's, what do you guys say about this? And like the team was super into it. So we just literally like threw out everything we had, like, you know, like months worth of code, thousands of lines of code. We were like, you know what? We're just gonna throw all this away, rebuild it from scratch and make it better. Hello and welcome to the Devs Do Something podcast. On this show, we're going to bring you technical discussions with some of the best engineering minds and engineering leaders in all of Web3. I'm your host, Sam Flamini. I work on developer experience at Superfluid, who also happens to be the producer of this podcast. You'll see me on this show with my co-host, Joshua Trujillo, deep dive with some of these engineering leaders into some of the most fascinating topics in all of Web3 development. On this episode, we have Rahul Sathuram, CTO and co-founder of Connext. Connext is building the first fully trust-minimized cross-chain communications protocol to make blockchains composable. Rahul has been in this space for the better part of five years. Before getting into crypto, he started his career as an electrical engineer at Tesla before ultimately starting a fintech business and then diving into Web3 and iterating his way to the proverbial idea maze until he landed on the idea that became Connext with his co-founder. In this episode, you'll get a behind the scenes look on what it takes to build cross-chain infrastructure. And you'll learn a little bit more about Rahul's story and how he thinks about the space more broadly. In this conversation, we hit on a ton of fascinating technical topics. Everything from optimistic bridge design to Connect's engineering process for everything from design to uh, security to testing. Uh, we also hear about how they manage multiple rewrites throughout the lifecycle of the protocol, some of Rahul's favorite non-EVM tech in the space, and we'll even walk through the full lifecycle of a complex cross-chain operation using Connext. So this episode was, was a very, very fun one for us to record. Uh, we think that if you are a Web3 engineer yourself, or you work with engineers, or maybe you're just curious about the cross-chain infrastructure space more broadly, if you're one of those people, we feel like you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. You'll see timestamps in our show notes. You're welcome to use those to navigate the episode or just listen to it all the way through. We hope you enjoy. All right, so we're here with Rahul from Connects. Rahul, thanks for joining us, man. Awesome. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks, guys, for having me. Totally. So we are super excited to talk to you today for the inaugural episode of the the Devs Do Something podcast. And yeah, I guess we can kick things off with just a little bit about your background, how you got in the space. And yeah, we'd love to hear your, your story a bit before we dive into technical topics. Yeah, totally. So uh, actually, I started my career as an electrical engineer. Uh, my first job out of college was Tesla. It was kind of like my dream job. It was always my dream to work on cars, electric cars. That was like back when Tesla was like the coolest new hot thing on the block. So, you know, that was a fun experience right out of college. It was like a, a tough job, but it was really like a good learning experience. Um, 
you know, long story short, throughout that process, got into stock trading because of like the Tesla stock and whatnot. So kind of like got deep into the fintech-ish space, stock trading options, uh, started to look at like programming platforms, et cetera, and then got like an idea for, for a company in the fintech space, which is kind of like stock trading related, social networky type thing. Uh, so that was kind of how I jumped into the entrepreneurship world. Uh, I'd already picked up software engineering by then. So I was a technical co-founder on a project. Um, yeah, long story short, that kind of ended in in somewhat of an aqua hire. So got into to something new and was kind of at a point where I was between jobs looking for the next thing I was going to do. Uh, this was around 2017. So like right after kind of the Dow hack, Ethereum was kind of like, uh, a thing that was like starting to become a thing, like Bitcoin was kind of going through like its first couple of boom cycles. Um, so I just was looking for the next thing to do. So I saw Ethereum, I started to look into it. I was like, this looks pretty cool. Let me approach this from the dev angle. So I looked at the API, started looking at the, the it as a platform. Uh, then I started like uh, applying for hackathons. I applied for like this virtual hackathon, ended up winning a prize. And I was like, oh, like this is super cool. Like look at this cool stuff you could do. Then I started going to developer meetups in San Francisco where I was based at the time. And that's how I ended up like meeting a lot of people. I met Arjun, who is my co-founder at Connects. So and basically, you know, that's how we ended up here. We essentially kind of gelled and about uh, something totally different than what we're what we're into now, of course. Like we started out building like fiat on ramps for like ICO tokens. It was like something totally different. But our main thesis, and this is still our thesis with Connects today, is along the lines of like how do we uh, make Ethereum accessible? How do we make it like make Ethereum serve like the next generation of users, the next billion users? And how do we like make it easy to use for like your grandma? And like, you know, of course, that looks very different. Like, and we got into very different things, but we've always kind of like approached it with that, whether it means like the developer interfaces or the actual like user interfaces or like how we present things to like normal people. It's always kind of been like, I want my grandma to be able to use this really cool technology. I love it. I love it. So how did you guys end up on this problem of bridging and interoperability uh, and connects overall throughout this throughout this process? I know the idea maze looks different for everybody, but would love to understand what yours was like. Yeah, totally. So, uh, you know, just to, to like, you know, continue on from what I was talking about, like, yeah, so we were trying to build these like fiat on-ramp type solutions. We had a bunch of like partners that were interested in the idea. And this was like back when the Ethereum blockchain was like starting to have scaling issues. Uh, so, you know, what we were hearing from our partners was that, uh, Ethereum is not able to scale as it is. So it's not going to support the level of mainstream users that you guys are trying to bring into the space. So, uh, you know, we took a step back from that and we were like, okay, well, if the chain doesn't scale, then that's the problem we have to attack first. So then we got into scalability. This was like, you know, 2018-ish, like pre-rollup, pre-anything. So like, the, the scaling solution at the time was state channels. So that's kind of like how we started building for scaling. We started building state channel-based solutions. We actually shipped the first like payment channel hub on Ethereum that was in production. That was uh, with Spank Chain. Like we basically collaborated and incubated this idea with Spank Chain. Uh, they built like a live tipping thing for their like, you know, cam feeds and stuff. So it was, it was cool. It was a fun project and, and we got things into production like that. Um, but then, you know, that was like 
you know, during this time, kind of like roll up started to become a thing. And then that was that was looking like clearly like that was going to be the scaling solution. We were like in state channels. We kind of like almost like bet on the wrong horse there or kind of like missed the the sort of like pivot over to roll ups. But by that time, what we noticed is that there were multiple roll ups and like, you know, there were like all these teams building roll ups together. And we were like, OK, well, there's going to be multiple roll ups. So there needs to be some kind of interoperability between those. Then we realized, actually, we made this realization that state channel hubs actually work as cross-chain bridges because you can have this hub that settles, like takes funds in one one chain and then settles it on another chain. So we basically like hacked together our system into a cross-chain bridge. And that's how we built the very first version of our Connects bridge, which was the vector-based state channel bridge. I love it. Yeah, we'll we'll get back into Vector in, in a little bit. And I want to hear how Vector evolved into what you guys have today. But I think we should we should touch on some of the the thinking around bridges and some of the problems with them before we get into that, I think. So you guys have talked a lot about this concept of the interoperability trilemma. Do you yeah. want to explain for our viewers what, what that is? Yeah, totally. So, you know, what we've seen with the current amount of bridge designs is that there's always like some trade-offs. Uh, what we've defined the interoperability trilemma is this trade-off between generalizability, which means the ability to uh, go to different chains very easily and be like kind of, uh, you know, a platform that is available everywhere on every chain very easily. Uh, trust minimization, which of course means like you don't, you want to reduce the amount of actors that you have to trust in a bridging solution. So you don't want to have like a multi-sig or any kind of like custodial based solution. Uh, that can run your funds at any time. And extensibility. So for us, extensibility means the ability to kind of uh, like compose your bridging technology in with other sort of solutions. So make it like a DeFi building block, essentially. So that that forms this interoperability trilemma, which which, you know, you can see in some of our writing and stuff like that. For sure, for sure. And my understanding, you can, you can correct this this if it's incorrect, but my understanding is that what you guys are doing with Connext is providing tooling to allow people to, I guess devs mainly, to, to navigate those trade-offs, right? I mean, it's going to be tough to, to solve everything at the same time. Right? That's why it's a trilemma. But I think the idea is that you're allowing people to take different layers of the stack, compose them together to build their own solutions that make the most sense. Is that is that the right way to think about what you guys do? Yeah, in a way. So, uh, you know, this this was kind of like based on the current amount of solutions that were available that we built this trilemma. And then, you know, we, we came up upon this concept of like an optimistic bridge, which uh, I think, you know, maybe is one of the topics that you want to talk about later. But, you know, long story short is this optimistic bridge more or less solves this trilemma by adding like a new dimension to it. So it becomes like a quadrilemma which three of the four edges are basically solved by the optimistic bridge, but it adds another layer to the trilemma, which is uh, latency. So now you have like a way to get everything solved. So you have your generalizability, your trust minimization, and your extensibility. But the trade-off is that you add a new layer, which is, you know, your bridging is not instant and you have some wait period that you have to wait for fraud proofs to be able to be pushed through. Um, so then what Connext is doing is we are basically solving that quadrilemma by adding an extra layer of like fast liquidity on top of that. So you can use this optimistic bridge, which has like the very good security properties, but then you can also use Connects like liquidity layer to instantly bypass that and, and use actors to like 
off-chain actors to essentially like pass uh, funds and also data between different chains. Yep. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, we can touch in on, on optimistic bridging now. I think it might be a good opportunity as well. We're recording this on August 3rd, two days ago, Nomad had a, had a, a bit of a hiccup um, and they had a, an exploit, but I think it might be worth Rahul touching on the fact that that had nothing to do with the, the optimistic bridge model. It didn't have anything to do with the economic security there. It was something separate. Do you want to just provide some clarity for people on that one? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, like, our hearts and thoughts and whatever and uh, love goes out to all the people that were affecting the hack. Of course, you know, we supported some of the chains that Nomad was using. So some of our liquidity providers and users were also caught holding these assets that that did become unbacked. And it's very unfortunate this happened because, you know, we and Nomad together have been like kind of really driving forward this vision about optimistic bridging and how it is really the only true trust minimized solution that solves this trilemma that we've put forward, right? So um, yeah, essentially the optimistic bridge, the way it works in a nutshell is it uses this latency period to uh, allow for one of N watcher actors to be able to prove fraud on the origin chain before messages are seen valid on a destination chain. So it's, it's a pretty simple in a nutshell, like, you know, to explain like that, like you just have something that happens on one chain and then you wait some time and then something happens on another chain. But the really important thing about it is it's one of N model rather than M N of M. So when you have like a multi-sig or a validator based bridge, you're saying like N of M people are allowed to make this decision on, on whether or not like this bridge is valid. And, you know, with that power comes the power to like mint tokens essentially in the in the case of a token bridge so you're saying these m of n actors can mint these tokens anytime they decide to and of course you know like incentives might make it so that they don't do the wrong thing but the idea is like they can at any time and you're trusting them uh, but with the one of n model you say okay during this period anybody can report fraud and if that fraud is indeed proven to be a valid fraud case then you can take the perf the right countermeasures, which, you know, in the case of a DAP would be like to pause other messages for going through while the fraudulent message is like unwound and replayed properly. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I think that's great that, that we just laid that out specifically in detail, right? Because I do think it is, it's very innovative. I do think it is going to solve a lot of these problems in the, in the bridging space for sure. While, while we're on the topic of the detail, like walking through how this works, I think it might be interesting for people to, because this is going to be mostly dev focused as a, as a podcast. I think it'd be interesting to just walk through the life cycle of like a common Connects transaction. Would you be able to just walk us through like a standard, like let's say that I have, I'll use a somewhat arbitrary use case, but let's say that I have a custom application that can send a single transaction on like L1 Ethereum mm -hmm. to provide liquidity to Uniswap on Polygon or a separate chain. Can you walk us through like what that would look like? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, in your case that you're talking about, so a user is going to send funds on Ethereum L1, then um, the Connects routers, which is like a network of liquidity providers, then will all submit bids to actually be the one to, uh, to execute the transaction on the destination chain, which in, in your example, I think was like optimism or something, right? Okay, let's just go with that. So Ethereum to optimism. 
So you're, uh, then these, these liquidity providers are all going to have some time window. In our case, I think it's like 30 seconds. So they all send their bids to this uh, actor, this off-chain actor called the sequencer. And the important thing to remember here is since this is off-chain, the uh, router can actually, the liquidity provider, the router can make sure that this is a perfect message, that this is like constructed in a way that there is no fraud and this is going to be delivered on the other side. So this router has like this power to know that this message will be delivered at the end of this fraud period on this side because it can see that there was no fraud, everything is working, everything is constructed properly. So because it like has this knowledge of both chains, it has data availability, it is able to instantly pass this, this liquidity across and then it's able to use its own liquidity to basically uh, give the user this uh, this set of money that it wants on the destination chain. And then also your example is really good because you're saying provide liquidity on Uniswap, which means you have to pass some call data as well. So on this side, this user will specify, okay, I want to call Uniswap contract on this destination side and call it with a little bit of call data, which will give, which will uh, put the tokens that I send with the bridging into this contract with some extra call data. And it's it's very important to note here that there's different types of call data as well. You can have uh, unauthenticated call data and authenticated call data. So what this means is, okay, this is gonna like, I hope I can explain this properly because this is a pretty important concept. So the Uniswap contract on the destination chain does not have the enforcement that it must be called by a message.sender. As a liquidity provider, you can say, I want to provide liquidity on behalf of address C or whatever. So whoever is providing liquidity does not have to be the person that like signs and sends the transaction. And this is very important because you're saying this set of decentralized actors who are the liquidity providers, any of them at any time can send this transaction for me. And since I don't know who that's going to be, I can't beforehand restrict that on the destination side. Um, so this is unauthenticated data. And this, this means it can be instantly bridged and that there doesn't need to be trusted because you know what you're saying is like anybody can call this contract function at any time. Um, the other case is authenticated data. So in this case, it was all good. You know, we could do this right away. But you know, there's there's another case of applications where you say on the destination side, I want to be very sure that this data comes from a specific user. So either you can do you can do this a couple of ways. You can say, okay, I want their signature. So if it's their signature, then this is also still unauthenticated data because you can just check the signature. And if you're checking a signature, you know it belongs to an ELA. But you know, if you're saying like, okay, I want a DAO to execute some action on a destination chain for a receiving chain. You want to be very sure on the destination chain that this this came from the DAO contract on this on the origin chain. So with that, then you need to say, okay, I only want to trust messages coming from the bridge. So that means I only want to trust messages that have gone through this fraud period because I want to make sure that these are the messages that are like actually valid. So because of that, you have this like combination of things that you can do. You can do uh, you can do just tokens, which are instant. You can do tokens plus unauthenticated call data, which is also instant, and you could do authenticated call data. And this all lives in this interface, which is the Connects X call interface. 
And, you know, to go back to your point about the life cycle. So let's just keep using your example. So we're at the point where the router provided the liquidity to Uniswap on behalf of you. So now you have tokens sitting on Uniswap. And, you know, by the way, like, of course, we have made it so that the, the router cannot change, for example, and say, like, I'm going to provide liquidity on behalf of myself, because then that would mean the router does not get paid back in the end. Like, so all the call data gets, like, hashed into, like, one thing, which is a transfer ID, which, which makes it so the router can get paid back at the end. Uh, so now router has has paid back. So now it's, like, sitting, it's, it's has less liquidity than what it started with. And then at the end of the fraud period, now the contract will see when it recovers the funds at the end. So like basically at the end of the fraud period, now new funds are minted through the Nomad contracts, uh, the optimistic bridge contracts. So they will, will go ahead and mint new funds and then they will see that the router fronted this transaction. So then they will send the funds to the router instead of to the user who initially sent the bridge transaction. So that ends sort of the whole life cycle. I love it. That's a fantastic explanation. And I, I wasn't even aware myself of some of the conditional logic you could add in, but that, that's really, really powerful. Josh, so this is actually an interesting lead-in. Um, so Josh actually has been working on a spec to do cross-chain money streaming with Superfluid using your contracts. And he's he's been raving about the developer experience, right? Because this is not simple, right? That's not like uh, transfer funds level level, <laughs> level uh, stuff, right? This is This is complicated. Josh, what was that experience like of you know, you know, sleuthing through those contracts and figuring that out. Yeah. So, um, you know, overall, I mean, you know, like, like Sam mentioned, bridges can be really, really complex um, and they can be you know, pre pretty difficult to build contracts for and, and things like this. So, um, you know, for one, obviously the documentation was great. Um, you know, really explained a lot of these, a lot of these inner workings. Uh, but I've also noticed and, and something that I really want to shout out um, to because uh, you know, personally, I love keeping up with, you know, these latest versions of Solidity and smart contract development in general. And I've noticed a lot of these really modern patterns, you know, that Connects uses that you don't really see in a lot of code bases, right? Because Solidity, you know, iterates so rapidly, there's so many new features coming out, it's hard to keep up, right? You know, a few years ago, you couldn't pass functions to functions, you didn't have custom errors or any of these kinds of things. So um, having direct access to these kinds of things, you know, within the uh, Connects code base was, um, you know, pretty great. And then also it is, um, you know, fairly straightforward, right? Working with this, building the uh, cross-chain call data and, and, you know, figuring out, I mean, there's there's a lot of configurability here, right? Like I've noticed there's, uh, of course you can send the funds, you can specify what token to send, you can specify, like you mentioned, call data. Um, there's there's a callback option, you know, there's there's all kinds of things, um, you know, there is, it's, it's really, really cool. You know, it's very configurable. Uh, one thing I would like to ask though on that, because um, I noticed there there is like this this callback field so what is what does that callback look like? So you let's say we go from you know Ethereum to Optimism, you know, keep, keeping in the theme here. So you send this message across, and what this message does is it can optionally send tokens and call data, and you know this happens on Optimism. So where is that callback called? Um, is that on the origin chain, destination chain? Like how does that how does that callback work, and what's its use case? Yeah, that, that's actually a great question and a great thing to get into here because. Uh, you know, once you're dealing with like different chains, you lose the uh, the synchronicity and the atomicity of uh, the blockchain itself. So like, you know, a lot of stuff is done on blockchains because transactions are fully atomic and you can do a lot of cool things. You can do like flash loans and things like that, which would not be possible if you don't have atomicity. But kind of like 
what we've seen is that like the way the world works and the way things on the internet work is they are all asynchronous. So like when you do things on the internet, you like send a request and then you wait for a response. And like JavaScript has like a really cool, like, you know, promise dot await, whatever, like dot then, like, you know, you can do all these different ways to, to set up callbacks to JavaScript. And uh, th that pattern is not present in Solidity, obviously, because it's, it doesn't need to be. But, you know, once you deal with like cross-chain stuff, then you get back to the point where you want to do things like you want to have the ability to do things asynchronously. So that's exactly where this callback comes in. So like your example, like on the origin chain, you want to send some message, you want to like grab some data. Let's say you want to like read the like block height or like something or like read some like price. Okay, let's say you want to read like a TWAP price is a good example. So you have like a TWAP running on this chain. You don't have this TWAP feed on this chain, but you want to see what the price of like some sort of token is. So you'll send a call. You will specify that you want the callback to be like this contract here, which implements a, a simple callback interface. Then you will um, hit this contract on the destination side. And then uh, once it gets the data, it will basically send another bridge transaction back the other way. And then it will call your function, your contract, calling the special function called callback with this data that it gets from this. So you know, you would you would set up your contract so that it knows how to decode the data you get back and everything like that. And then you would have essentially a way to get a callback. And yeah, it's it's kind of like a, a new pattern that hasn't really been done. And we, you know, we think that it's it this is this asynchronous solidity is kind of like a thing that is going to exist. And we really want to like support this from the get-go. That's really cool. That's fascinating. Um because th this is I mean, this is a hurdle that, you know, we came across when we were building this cross-chain streaming prototype where, you know, everything in Superfluid is dependent on the timestamp, right? You know, you can't, can't compute a real-time balance without, without some sort of, uh, you know, uh, time there. And it turns out time is a, is a really, really hard problem, right? Especially between blockchains, you have, you know, there's no guarantee that, you know, these block times are exactly the same. Uh, different blockchains actually have different, you know, thresholds for, you know, where that timestamp needs to be. Um, and being able to send that timestamp back across the bridge would be really cool. What one more brief question is on, on that actually? So, if he gives the permission call where it goes through, um, yeah, it goes through the Nomad bridge. It takes the long way around. Um, does that when the callback happens, does it also go back across the Nomad bridge again? Yeah. So that that's a good question, a good point because the callback uh, by necessity has to be like authenticated data, so it has to go through like slow path. Um, so, you know, when you're dealing with things like time and stuff like that, you have to kind of like build in the fact that it is going to be like delayed by some amount. So, you know, especially the support for, you know, the example I gave, like TWAPs, like there are uh, projects we're working with that are already working on cross-chain TWAPs. And like this had to be a consideration for them, like what the time period is. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, the point is that it does have to be like authenticated data. Otherwise, anybody would be able to like call this callback function, and like kind of trick you into thinking that. So you have to kind of validate that it comes from the bridge itself. I love it. I love it. So, so Josh mentioned he liked some of the modern patterns you guys are using in Solidity. Uh, something that I think we'll we'll try to ask pretty often on this show is, are there any gas optimizations, storage optimizations, or patterns that you're just really proud of in the Connects contracts that might not get a whole lot of public love that you'd like to share? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think, uh, like Joshua said, it's like, uh, we do try to use the most modern stuff and keep up with the stuff, especially like 
you know, even as we're building out these contracts, we're like basically always upgrading to the latest version until we have to like freeze for an audit or whatever. So we're always kind of like pulling it in. And, and one thing that like came up as we were building that was this whole like new like error pattern where you use like an error class instead of like a revert uh bait into the normal like revert string you would throw like this error class so that was something that we like put in immediately right away um that was yeah i thought that was, that was super cool as far as like other other things go uh you know i'm not i i can't really say there's anything too much too crazy there like we we obviously we really try to go for like simplicity and readability even at the cost of like certain things like gas savings so like we've always kind of like erred on the side of like making things as readable and simple as as possible like i think even you know like going back to this nomad exploit it's like you really see like how little bits of complexity can like add up and cause you to kind of forget things or kind of like miss things and like you know even like really important things that you think are like you know you'll never forget about that it's like you know there's so much going on in this stuff and so much complexity that that kind of builds on top of each other that you just need to reduce complexity as much as possible. So I'd say like the thing I'm most proud about is like how simple we've kept everything and how kind of how much we focused on like the the outside facing interfaces as much as possible. Like, you know, just to just to kind of like highlight on this X call thing itself, like we tried to make this like as uh as kind of like analogous to the normal solidity call pattern. Like we were like, this is just call but x call you know like and and eventually we want to get this and things like open zeppelin and like have it really be like a primitive that can be used the second you want to start doing cross-chain stuff no i'm with you yeah readability is really important right and i i noticed that when i was looking through your, your code base at x call right it was it was pretty intuitive um so yeah no i love it um so zooming back out again to just uh your high level development process right you mentioned earlier that initially you guys started with state channels and something called vector, right? And now mm -hmm. you have a new system that's more generalizable. I'd love to understand what that development cycle looked like over the last year, year and a half or so. Um, can you can you shed some light on on how that wall worked? Yeah, totally, totally. So, um, you know, yeah, like I said, vector was state channel based bridge. Uh, it's cool. It's like trust minimized like every every bridge solution we've built has been like trust minimized because that is just like the one thing that we've always kind of prioritized our number one priority is to like not introduce any kind of trust on top of what the chains already introduced so you don't have to trust some some centralized actor you don't have to trust some like m of n multi-sig uh we have routers who are liquidity providers the only thing they could do is like kind of censor transactions in a way like they can kind of like pretend they're going to send you liquidity and then they're not but like at some point it's going to expire and you'll get get your funds back so you know things things like that so like the consequences of uh some of these these actors in the middle is, is not much for what they can do compared to like a full-on rug um but anyway so like yeah vector uh state channel bridges like do have some trade-offs themselves like first of all there is a lot of complexity in the off-chain code itself so like not much of the code is actually on chain in the state channel implementation. A lot of it is off chain. So like you have these two off chain actors that are like basically sending messages back and forth with each other to do this whole transaction. It was like crazy. It was like 10 messages going back and forth over the wire to like do like a cross chain bridge transaction. Um, and like this is all running like within the browser. So it's pretty cool architecture. We like ran like a 
a node inside the browser that like had its own like wallet address that was determined deterministically generated based on your signature um but that meant you don't have like cross device support and that meant like you know if you like refresh at the wrong time you have to like resync you and like that can like cause things to get like weird at some point so uh-huh. there was a lot of complexity we were dealing with there and like you know like i alluded to before our like one of our big like development paradigms that connects is always like aggressively reduce complexity as much as possible so you know one day we just like kind of sat there and we were like what if we just rebuilt this from scratch and we thought of it like if we were going to redesign like a cross-chain protocol from the scratch what would it look like and like we spent like maybe two days like just talking about it and designing it and then like we kind of proposed it to like the team uh as like a possible thing like let's what do you guys say about this and like the team was super into it so we just literally like threw out everything we had like you know like months worth of code thousands of lines of code we were like you know we're just gonna throw all this away rebuild it from scratch and make it better so that's how we got to nxtp which was like the next iteration of that and then nxtp is great it's uh you know in the in the trilemma it kind of sits between like uh extensible and trust minimized or sorry generalizable and trust minimized uh, but it's not very extensible because you can't do these cool like smart contract based interactions. You can't do like, you know, what you guys are building, like cross chain streaming through like NXTP. We've actually been talking to you guys for so long to figure out how we could do that through our protocol. And that wasn't even possible until we came up with this new protocol. But so those are some of the trade offs we wanted to address with the new system. So that's why we, we kind of went back to the drawing board again. And then we're like, okay, well, what would this look like if we were going to rebuild it from scratch? Then, you know, exploring from what was there already, we saw like this optimistic bridge design that like, you know, the Nomad team had kind of just started working on. And, and that's when we kind of like went to them early and we were like, okay, like instead of building our own thing from scratch, let's partner and build this in layers. And that's kind of how we got to where we are now. So I guess one thing is like, you know, we, we've never really been afraid to like throw everything out and start from scratch, like for better or for worse. Sometimes that makes it worse because then like, you know, you, you kind of like, have to like take some time where you're either supporting two different systems or you have like a lot of downtime in between. Um, but, you know, I think our approach has always been like, let's get rid of complexity. Let's like re- redo it in the most simple way possible instead of like adding a bunch of stuff on top to make it do something. I love it. Yeah, that might be a good segue into how you guys operate like from a more meta level within your engineering team. So it sounds like you've literally gone back to the drawing board and said, all right, let's 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 start from scratch. Let's rewrite a lot of code. Let's think about this from first principles again. How do you guys tend to approach these new development cycles? Do you just literally like get together in an offsite and say, all right, let's, let's figure out how we can do this first principles again. Do you guys do like OKRs and stuff, sprints? I mean, how does it, how does your development cycle tend to look? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we are a fully distributed team. We have team members all across the world. So like asynchronous communication is always like, a thing that we have to do but like you know like like you just alluded to like offsites are a really good opportunity to kind of come up with these things and design these things so we have like we have like you know timed offsites specifically around these kinds of upgrades like you know to, to kind of coordinate the amarok upgrade we did like a big team offsite and that does tend to really help like kind of get everyone on the same page and then you know kind of when everyone has that idea then we do have uh like sprint planning sprints and we we do go through the normal sprint cycle i mean one thing i'll say is like 
uh, we used to manage the sprints kind of like as the engineering team and have the engineers manage the sprints. And like I was kind of like doing a lot of like the sprint planning and stuff. And finally we hired like a program manager, project manager. Uh, and that has been like a godsend in terms of like just getting rid of like moving the stuff off the engineer's plates itself around like task management and sprint planning and kind of like that more into like a just, you know, now here's what we have to do. We know how everything's structured. We just go and build it. Yep. Yeah. We've taken a similar pathway in certain areas. It's, it's super fluid. It's definitely helped. Uh, we're, we're with you 100% there. Uh, what about just overall like maintenance and security? How do you guys think about that? Do you guys have any like uh, processes you think that the rest of the, the ecosystem should probably know about and potentially implement? Do you have any crazy GitHub actions that you're proud of? Uh, how do you guys think about that whole process? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely becoming more and more relevant thing today in terms of like, you know, all these hacks and exploits and especially things like the Nomad thing, which is like a upgradability, configurability kind of kind of issue. So I think it's really important. And that's that's something we're gonna really like deep dive into going into this upgrade. It's like how to uh how to really structure this stuff around it. Like, you know, traditionally we do have our normal set of like GitHub actions. We have like our staging environment set up. We have like a, you know, set of tests that runs on staging before it gets promoted to prod. Um, we have a normal set of like unit tests. We, we, we require like unit, everything to be fully unit tested. We've actually kind of built out a very cool like unit testing framework for things that does like, you know, very cool levels of mocking and things like that for the off-chain code. All the on-chain code is tested using like Forge Foundry tests. Uh, we're gonna, we are in the process of implementing like fuzz testing on everything as well in Forge and Foundry, which is really cool. Uh, then we have like fully local end-to-end -end tests, which basically spin up all our off-chain agents, spin up multiple chains, and then like run a whole suite of tests, fully local and reproducible. That was like a pretty hard thing to get set up, but I think it's super important to do. Um, but really we want to like, you know, super deep dive into this exact topic over the coming like days, weeks to really figure out like best practices approach towards like, how do we make sure code is production ready? Like what are all the real checks we need? And then in terms of like things like incident response, how do we make sure like, you know, what's the worst case scenario thing that can happen? Like a huge smart contract bug, like how are we going to respond to that immediately? uh even to things like where can we like put kind of like uh real checks in place to make sure like certain things don't happen like can we like do we need to make things like possible in certain places and have like automated actors that are watching and checking uh can like one really cool thing about this whole like optimistic bridge technology is actually in this fraud proof window you have like a 30 minute window to basically like check a lot of different things like yeah you need to check like the fraud on the basic like merkle proof level but you can also do things like as as the brit has like the chain been exploited like do i need to like shut this down because there was some like external issue external to our entire system excuse me so because of that like because you have this window you can like add extra levels of monitoring observability and uh like response to it as well yeah, no, that, that's really cool. And I think that sometimes that that small window or even having some kind of circuit breaker is actually, there, there's arguments as to why, like I know Josh is big on smart contracts, you deploy them once they're immutable. He, he's big on, he likes immutability, but the ability to have that kind of window is is helpful, right? So 
Yeah, I think, I mean, sorry, sorry to, to interrupt, but I think, you know, we went through that exact thing. Like we, when we, all our contracts we deployed, like from the early days were fully immutable, no ownership, nothing like that. Um, you know, but but now we're moving to an upgradable, possible pattern because, you know, when you're dealing with this, especially when you're dealing with like bridges and cross-chain stuff, there are like all these kind of externalities and all these sort of like unknowns and risks that like you take on as a bridge and, you know, your liquidity providers take on that like really you do need some level of control more than like some, you know, more than like a normal DeFi apps or like single chain apps or like things like that. Like there's just a lot of unknowns, especially right now. I think things are like still being figured out in this space where there do need to be like some level of like, you know, of, of control over this stuff. We've yet to see like what that will fully look like, but you know, I think, I think we, we will do as much as we can towards this. Yeah, I'm with you. You guys definitely have a lot of surface area with the different environments and things. I, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so you guys are all EVM now, right? You support EVM environments only? Yes, we do support EVM environments only. Um, that is not like the long, long-term plan, but that is probably like the short, medium-term plan. Just because, you know, it would take a lot of effort to rewrite all our smart contract layer in, in any other uh, language. And what we're seeing now is like we're seeing this bridgehead thing, right? So like any non-EVM environment is basically getting like an EVM-based like roll-up or like a layer on top of it. So like you see that with like, you know, with Near and Aurora, with like uh, Neon on Solana and uh, Moonbeam on Polkadot, Evmos on Cosmos. Mm -hmm. So. So all these environments have basically like an entry point through EVM. Mm -hmm. Have you thought at all about what it would look like long-term to rewrite those contracts? Because we, we think about the same thing sometimes, right? We're EVM only as well. Like we want to be, you know, it, again, long-term future, it'd be great to be agnostic. But I mean, have you guys thought about what that what that might look like when it happens? Um, yeah, so we, we actually have kind of designed things with the ability to eventually be uh like non-evm compatible like we we wrote our rpc layer in a way that like the rpc interface itself is like a plugin so you could just write like a plugin for a non-evm layer uh we use subgraphs as well so subgraphs are already like expanding past evm into like other non-evm layers i think they have near or something like that they have already announced something like that um so that's kind of like another layer of abstraction on the chain itself uh, so we do try to like put in these layers of abstraction as much as we can so that it's as easy as possible, like plug and play uh, the EVM itself. And um, if maybe we could get a, a little philosophical for a moment, um, you know, just just big picture here. Right. I mean, the, the EVM is a you know, relatively simple machine overall. Right. Uh, you know, only a handful of instructions, it's a stack machine, pretty easy to reason about. Um, yet it's. It's wildly popular, and you know maybe some of that is uh, you know having that first mover's advantage. But you know it's so popular that you have you know zero knowledge uh, scaling solutions that are arguing about who's actually EVM you know equivalent, right? So what are your thoughts about the EVM when compared to you know other uh, blockchain you know virtual machines? Yeah, I mean I haven't dove too much into the non EVM space, honestly. But it's always been something I've wanted to do. But you know, I just haven't really had the time. But you know, what I've what I've from what I've heard, like 
the Cosmos ecosystem has like really good like SDKs, like the Cosmos SDK. I constantly hear about that. And actually we, you know, I talked about our like centralized component, which is a sequencer right now. Eventually our goal is to have like some sort of tendermint consensus between all our liquidity providers. So that would like decentralize the, the whole protocol itself. Uh, so that you would use the Cosmos SDK, which is kind of like a building block for the entire Cosmos ecosystem, which does seem to have like really cool, like inter blockchain communication, IBC, uh, that, so that, that is really cool. And like, I've always wanted to kind of explore that more. I also think Rust smart contracts could be pretty cool, but I haven't really seen what they look like in practice. Uh, another thing that I'm seeing recently is like this move thing. Like, I don't know how, how much you guys have seen of that, but like this, there's like this whole like thing with this this new language move and like it's it's like I've actually seen very positive reactions on like Twitter from like some of the the developer folks that I follow and saying that it that it works really well and that they've even like introduced some like tooling and stuff around it. So I'm kind of excited to see like how this plays out. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, the, the move language, uh, from what I've seen, I mean, very, very brief experience with it, but it is very Rust-like in syntax. Um, you know, a lot of people tend to call it like a more simplified version of Rust, which, by the way, I, I heard that earlier. You said, Donna, wait, that's a Rust pattern. Somebody's been playing <laughs> Rust. I love it. It's, yeah. Oh, JavaScript has the weight too. Yeah, but but I know Rust Rust is awesome. I, I really, you know, my goal is to like rewrite all our stuff in Rust. Uh, right now, it's just like all like Node.js TypeScript stuff, but uh, you know, eventually, we want to get to the point where we can do more Rust stuff. Awesome, cool. So, a couple other questions before we, we wrap up. But one thing I think we should hit on. So, there's a bunch of noise about zero knowledge stuff, right? And I saw you guys recently put out a piece on validity proofs and bridging. Can you can you just kind of give us an overview of like where Validity proofs might fall short when it comes to being used within bridge technology and maybe where they might be promising. I mean, I would love just your overall take on on that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, uh, you know, because uh, fraud proofs have been like a kind of an evolution in bridging technology, uh, people are kind of like wrongfully assuming that because fraud proofs are a thing, like validity proofs might also be a thing. And then like everyone is kind of like hand waving around like ZK stuff as like being like the be all end all. Um, but in reality, you know, like what, what this article puts out, like, you know, what I would urge everyone to read as well, because, you know, I'm not the expert in this field, but like our researcher Hadas did a lot of like deep dive into this is that like validity proofs are actually like not going to be the answer and ZK uh, proofs are not the answer because what you really need to do is you need to like, validate the consensus mechanism from one chain and another chain and like one part of that is really easy but the other part of that which is like the actual like consensus and availability of the nodes itself is like impossible actually to do in a fraud proof or in sorry in a validity proof and, and especially using zk stuff so uh with that said it's it's essentially impossible to have a fully validity proof based like cross chain system, because that's just not going to work. You're not going to get all kinds of chains. You're not going to get all the chains to do it. Um, there are some approaches where you could get like light client information from one chain to another chain. Actually, one one place where this is most likely going to happen is like within the Ethereum and rollup ecosystem. So I think you know eventually once we have like full zk rollups. 
we will have like the data availability, cross-chain data availability. So you are going to, I think we're going to see that space evolve into something like really cool where you can have like, you know, you basically won't need bridges anymore when you're going between different ZK rollups and Ethereum. You will just basically be able to have like fully like cross-chain uh, communication, like directly natively built into like nodes and stuff like that. Nice. Does some of the and forgive me if I'm if I'm misunderstanding some of this, but does some of the issue with the validity proofs come down to reorgs, or is that a separate is that a separate issue? Yeah, that that I think or I believe that's a separate issue. Um, again, you know, I wish I wish I was more like <laughs> the expert on this matter, but uh, I believe that's that's not really the issue. The issue is more around like availability and like uh, the consensus of the nodes itself, like proving that all the nodes actually saw the transaction. You actually did have like M of N or like whatever, 51% consensus around the thing. And each chain has its own different like consensus mechanism. So just because you build these validity proofs for one chain and it works somehow, even if you like solve all these like unsolvable problems on one chain, then you have to go solve them on another chain. So it doesn't really scale to like a kind of mesh solution like the one that we're looking for. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll put the link to that article in the show notes because I think it is a good read for people that are curious. Uh, okay, so so a couple, couple final questions for you. Um, these are a little more high level, but let's say that you you have, let's say somebody gives you the next six months and says, uh, Rahul, you can't work on Connects. You got to work on something uh, as, a, as an independent developer in this whole like cross-chain ecosystem space or the, the ecosystem more broadly. What kind of things would you, would you look at working on? What what other things do you do you get excited about? Yeah, I mean, I actually do get really excited about like DeFi. I love like DeFi primitives, especially um, so things like uh, lending protocols, like uh, you know swapping mechanisms, like things like that. So uh, I'm definitely interested in that. I've always kind of like wanted to like build some kind of like cross chain native uh, like application that's kind of like you know on the application side. So so I would definitely go somewhere in that direction. Uh, I've also, you know, I would love to like learn more about the ZK side as well, especially, you know, the stuff that you guys have brought up as well. So like, you know, I, I don't know much about like how the proofs work, what these proofs have in them, like how to construct them. Like, you know, I feel like very much like a newbie still in terms of that. So just kind of getting into that. And the other thing I'm super interested in is like MEV stuff. Like, I think that's that's been like a big hot topic lately. Uh, so, you know, not like, you know, more more like on the block building side, like the actual like searching for opportunities, like, you know, things like front runners, arbitrage, things like that are like interesting to me. I know some some of that is kind of like a like dark patterns, I guess. But like, you know, just just it's it's super cool to like see this whole thing play out and like all these different like forces you get in this like truly permissionless system. Well, if I could maybe uh expand on that last bit a, a little um, because I have been, uh, you know, briefly studying MEV and, and kind of that process of searching and finding these opportunities, right? And, you know, people think MEV, a lot of times they think, you know, arbitrage or, uh, you know, liquidations or things like this, right? And so I was wondering, um, you know, since there are, you know, incentives in play, right, with, you know, systems like Connects, um, you know, are there any kind of uh, sort of opportunities for searchers in there or how does that work? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question, one we've been thinking a lot about, because like we have been kind of approached around the idea of like using cross-chain bridging to arbitrage, to do uh, cross-chain arbitrage. Uh, 
what we've seen is that like when we delve kind of deeper into this, we've seen like it's not really possible because there are always actors with like funds on like both sides who are able to like instantly close ARB opportunities like faster than you can like bridge and do it. So it, it doesn't really make sense in that case. However, we do kind of have the property of like our sequencer uh, almost like having access to MEV itself. Like if you have like a bundle of like cross-chain transactions, you could essentially like order them, you know? So, so there is some aspect of like uh, our router sequencers having some sort of like MEV type information and basically like a mempool themselves. Like, you know, we, we kind of like talked about it, like we use subgraphs, right? So we have subgraphs on the on the origin side and the destination side. Those subgraphs almost become like a mempool of sorts because you can kind of see what the transactions that are going to be bridged are and like you know you could use that to sort of construct any opportunities yourself now that's a alpha. <laughs> that's really cool <laughs> that's right i love it all right so so final question before we before we wrap up um this is more on just your long-term vision for our industry um let's let's say that we fast forward 10 years 2032 what what do you hope exists in in crypto and web three more broadly? What what do you what do you hope is the long term vision of the space? If we if we zoom out and don't look at all the craziness that happens on the day to day, uh, where do you end up? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good good one. I like that. Um, I think one thing is like connects. We definitely want connects to be around, and like that's that's really one of the things that we talk about a lot at connects is we say we're we want connects to be the only protocol or not the only protocol but a protocol that will be around in like 50 years that's why that's why we don't like compromise on things we don't like really like take the easy way out even if like you know taking the easy way out would be like building a multi-sig bridge like some of our competitors have done that they've like scaled way bigger than us and been able to scale quickly because of that but you know we don't want to compromise on that because we know like that's not the way towards like a sustainable uh protocol that is going to be around for the long term. So that's one thing. Of course, you know, like on the other side, I think Ethereum, like I'm very bullish on like the Ethereum roadmap with the whole like merge, surge, verge, purge, whatever, like, you know, all the stuff that Vitalik threw out for the different phases. So I'd love to kind of like see that come to fruition and really see like Ethereum become sort of this like real like global public infrastructure that's kind of used as the backbone for like everything, like finance, identity, like every kind of like public information that needs to be there can be there with like fully customizable privacy controls because of zero knowledge stuff. So uh, seeing all that kind of like come together as like this sort of end vision for like the stuff that we're building and, you know, like obviously like streaming super fluid streams everywhere, like everybody should be, using that for like any sort of like subscription salary like anything or any other like cool cool uh, things that you guys are having the work so um yeah just like very bullish on the next 10 years in general i think we're gonna see like everything explode because of, of just like you know all the stuff that's just being like built right now and i think you know it's hard because people outside don't really see it they just see like prices and numbers and things like that but like you know we're on the inside we're the ones who are like in the in the front lines like building the stuff so we get to see like all this kind of like inertia that's being like uh or, or this like potential energy that's kind of like being created here and it's just gonna like explode into like all this like cambrian explosion of stuff 
I love it. It's a great answer. Well, thank you for coming on, man. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, totally. This has been great. Thanks a lot, guys. This is really cool. Yeah. And then and then just, you know, where where can people find your work? Where can people find Connects? I mean, where where should they go to learn more about what you're working on? Yeah, definitely. So Connects big on Twitter. Uh, I myself am on Twitter uh, at R-H-L-S-C-H-R-M. Um, connects, you know, we have a really popular Discord as well. So Twitter, Discord, you know, usual usual suspects. If you want to get more involved, check us out on GitHub as well. You know, we're always looking for contributors and stuff like that. Also, if you want to build stuff on us, like, you know, we, we really want to find builders who are excited about building like the next generation of like cross-chain applications. So please get in touch with us about that as well. Really happy to help support. I love it. I love it. Well, again, thanks again. This has been awesome. This has been a great first episode. You were a fantastic guest. And uh, Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. yeah. Excited. Absolutely. All right, guys. Bye-bye. Take care.